Welcome to Breaking Down the Podcast Season 2 episode. I don't know because we're doing these in batches. <laughs> um, today we're so excited. We're joined by Dr. Jenny Wong Hall. Got it right. Um, I just call her Jenny, so yeah. but she's a doctor. Um, and Mia is gonna tell you a little bit more about her. Oh yay. Hi. Hi. Um, <laughs> So I had the absolute privilege of being connected to Dr. Jenny Wong Hall when um, a very important friend of mine linked us together. And what I noticed the most about Jenny is, gosh, like the energy level and the realness and um, the passion and the inspiration that you can just derive by sitting across from her at breakfast. It's pretty remarkable. And so... um, uh, Dr. <laughs> what? <laughs> what was that word? <laughs> Dr. Jenny. Oh, doctor. Okay. <laughs> Cut. Uh, so Jenny actually has her private practice in Oceanside, and she's actually a fellow at UCSD mm-hmm. in the eating disorder treatment center there. And so um, uh, we couldn't be more privileged and excited and honored that she will be doing a talk with us today about perfectionism. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited to do this. I feel like there is so much to talk about when it comes to perfectionism. So I'm going to try to rein it in, but I think there's a lot to say. So thank you so much for taking the time and for teaching us about this topic that I know I personally relate to and Mia does too. Do you want to tell our little story about this morning? What happened? Oh, Lord. <laughs> if anyone that knows me at all or knows me well, I'm like a psycho about time. Like, I don't know what it is, but I feel like I'm a very under-controlled person, but insane about timeliness. And I'm always early to everything, including our last podcast recording where I was four minutes earlier than Edie was to her own home. (laughs) And so today I went from a consult meeting, tried to get here. I actually got here right on time, but could not find any parking. And I was screaming in my car because I couldn't believe that I would make you guys wait 25 minutes. I just, I can't get over it, but holy crap, I guess I'm really struggling with with perfectionism (laughs) there. It is so uncomfortable. But we were just chatting. We were just hanging out, having coffee. Yeah. <laughs> so see, even even your therapists, guys, we have stuff that we work on and that we struggle with. I know. Totally. We were talking before um, while we were drinking our coffee just about like our struggles personally with profe- perfectionism and professionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that Jenny has so much to share. So do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about your journey as to how you became passionate about this? Yeah. So um, it basically starts when I was a kid. I had two very, very perfectionistic parents who loved me, doted on me, wanted to give me absolutely every opportunity in the world, um, and like made it pretty clear that not succeeding was not an option. Um, I knew from the time that I was about eight that I would be getting a PhD or an MD because like anything less wasn't acceptable. Um, both of my parents are doctors and just super high achieving and like very intense people. And so, um, like one of the things we know about perfectionism is that it has a genetic component. So I was genetically wired to be a perfectionist 
And because both my parents were perfectionists, the environment shaped me to be a perfectionist. And so it was really this combination of genes and environment um, that led to me being a kid and an adolescent who like could not do anything but the best and reached for the highest possible standards of achievement. Um, and what ended up happening in one of the kind of key components of perfectionism is that your self-worth becomes contingent on the achievement of those goals. Mm -hmm. And so what I experienced was feeling that if I didn't achieve, then I wasn't worthy. So it becomes this deeply um, intrinsic self sense of, of shame and low self-worth when you're not meeting um, really high achievement goals for yourself. And so I played instruments, I sang, I was um, in a lot of like top academic kind of classes and, you know, like extracurriculars and things like that. And so much of who I was became focused on what I was doing. Um, and that really carried with me into college and grad school. In college, I was like insanely preparing to have a career, you know, in a PhD program. And so I was doing all this really intense research and volunteering at all these places, and it still never felt like enough. Um, despite the fact that I was like making tangible progress towards my goals, I still believed that I was never going to get there. I believed that when I did accomplish things, I just got lucky or it should have been harder than it was. So I couldn't even be satisfied with my own um, accomplishments. And in grad school is where it got really gnarly. Um, so as you guys know, grad school is an incredibly intense time mm -hmm. um, where you are just furiously working towards a number of goals, both related to coursework and research and clinical work. Um, and one of the key kind of like definitions of clinical perfectionism is that it causes both impairment and distress. Like we talk about with a lot of other psychological disorders, that's really the marker of when it becomes like pathological, like a real problem. And I would say in grad school is where it really became clinical for me. Um, it was getting in the way of my relationships. And so one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand about perfectionism is that when you're striving to be absolutely perfect all of the time, you're not being real. Mm -hmm. You're not being authentic um, because we know that ultimately what really creates closeness in relationships is vulnerability and the willingness to be seen with your flaws. Um, and so both in my friendships and in my marriage, I was already married at that point. I really felt like my relationships um, took a hit because I had to be this perfect person. I had to get up at 5 a.m. and, you know, get my workout in and write all the emails and do all the things and give 150% of my best effort at all my clinical sites. And on no level was I being authentic. I was trying to paint this picture of myself for the rest of the world as a perfect person. And I didn't even know what that meant. I think that's one of the things about perfectionism is that we're all striving for this goal that we haven't operationalized. Like, and when we try to, we can all realize that there is no perfect. Everyone has flaws, but I couldn't accept that. And so eventually, uh, somewhere around my third year of my PhD program, I realized that I was running myself into the ground. I was irritable. I was moody. 
Um, I wasn't investing in relationships. I wasn't investing in hobbies. And I finally was like, I need help. Um, and so I'd been at, I, I had been in therapy at other points in my life, but it was at that point in grad school that I really realized I needed to work on my perfectionism. Um, and at that point I didn't have any like clinical or academic knowledge about perfectionism Mm -hmm. like I do now, but I was like, this is a thing and I need to work on it. Um, and so I saw a lovely psychologist who was like, basically you're trying to be something that is impossible. Um, you're not being a real person and it's getting in the way of you being happy. And so what the process was in therapy for me was unpacking this idea of what it meant to be worthy, of what it meant to be a perfect person. Um, and I think what I was able to do over time was tie my sense of self-worth to who I was as a person instead of the things that I was doing. So it was great if I, you know, passed my comprehensive exams with flying colors. It was great if I got a really nice letter of recommendation from someone, but those weren't the things that defined me anymore. It was my sense of humor. It was my passion. It was my kindness. And the thing that's so great about all of those qualities is that they are intrinsic to who I am as a person. They don't have anything to do with my achievements. So whether or not I, you know, get that promotion or make that next step in my business, it's ultimately the ability to still feel good about who I am. Um, So all of that journey kind of led me to the place where I was curious about perfectionism in the context of my work, which is as an eating disorder psychologist. So that's kind of the nutshell of of how I arrived at perfectionism. Um, it's it's something that's so relevant, I feel like, for a lot of clinical work, but definitely for eating disorders. Sure. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I yeah. think that it's, I loved so much of what you said, but that idea of like our intrinsic value is something that mm-hmm. I talk about pretty much every session, I yeah. think. Um, and for myself too, it's finding those things that are not that are beautiful and flawed and intrinsically yours, Mm -hmm. right? That no one can take away from no matter if you are the president of the United States or, you know, just being you, right? And and that those value systems start to shift from external to internal. Love that. Yeah, for sure. And so beautifully said. I was going to say eloquently and then I changed it. I love it. (laughs) On the fly. And I think too, that idea of like genuineness and vulnerability is what creates human connection. And we strive as humans off of human connection. Absolutely. We are like neurobiologically hardwired to seek connection. And when we're doing things that are contrary to our values and who we are as a real genuine person, we sacrifice that connection. And we end up having a wide variety of you know, mental health struggles because we are not allowing ourselves to do what we are here to do, which is connect mm-hmm. and engage in meaningful relationships. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're now using perfectionism in your work? And I know you said that you're running a group about it and yeah. I would love to hear that about that. That is so exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, so first I'll just share a little bit about kind of the link between perfectionism and eating disorders and like what we know about that. So Um, the research has really consistently demonstrated that individuals with eating disorders have higher levels of perfectionism than healthy controls or just normal people off the street, and they have higher perfectionism than other disordered groups. So 
someone with an eating disorder is going to have higher perfectionism than somebody with just a generalized anxiety disorder or depression or OCD. There's something really unique about eating disorders that um, there's just this link with perfectionism that really kind of fuels the disorder. And so um, it's I think it's also really interesting, kind of like my own personal experience. Um, in individuals with eating disorders, we see that perfectionism runs in the families. So there's this hereditary component in eating disordered individuals um, such that their family members have also shown perfectionistic traits. And this is just crazy to me. 48% of people with eating disorders showed global childhood rigidity, which is kind of a precursor to oh. eating disorders. So even in childhood, these individuals are already showing perfectionistic traits um, like rigidity that is kind of the inability to see things in different ways or, you know, hold multiple options as possibilities for themselves. So the research definitely demonstrates to us that perfectionism is something that we need to attend to in eating disorders. And I would say I've been working in eating disorders now for about um, 10 years because I started in residential right after college and have been in a number of settings since then. And with all of the different levels of care that I've been in, I've seen perfectionism really running rampant in people with a wide range of eating disorders. So I think there's kind of a stereotype that it's the anorexic patient who's sweet and meek and mild and quiet, who is a perfectionist. And that is just not true. Not true. It is yeah. not true at all. We see people with the full range of eating disorders, with all types of emotional expression, all types of backgrounds, really struggling with perfectionism. And so kind of the link between perfectionism and eating disorders is in cognitive patterns or just the way that people think about things. And so you know, in therapy, we talk a lot about cognitive distortions, this idea that there are like flawed and problematic ways of thinking that fuel unhealthy behaviors. And so for people with eating disorders and perfectionism, what that tends to look like is a lot of all or nothing thinking, um, catastrophizing, should statements, making comparisons. So those traits, those patterns of thinking are so common in, in individuals with eating disorders and the perfectionism just fuels the eating disorder symptoms. So if you have all or nothing thinking around food, you're probably going to categorize some foods as good and other foods as bad. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a really rigid worldview that, you know, food is a part of our lives every single day. And so if we are categorizing it into these really strict, discrete um, sections, then it makes it really hard to live naturally and spontaneously and freely. So for our individuals with eating disorders, we know that they are cutting out huge food groups because those foods are bad. Those foods are negative. And thinking back to that sense of intrinsic self-worth, when the self-worth is based on things like your food choices, if you don't make the right food choices, what does that even mean, right? Like right. right. Um, if you don't make the choices that you believe are right or most moral or most pure or clean, all these words that we hear with eating disorder patients, then you're going to feel pretty crummy about yourself. And with catastrophizing, I see this all the time. Um, at UCSD, we, you know, have our patients on a meal plan, you know, where they basically eat six times a day. They eat meals and snacks. And I oftentimes see so much catastrophization around I cannot eat that burrito because if I eat that burrito, I'm going to gain weight and I'm never going to stop gaining weight. 
And of course, like weight gain and weight stigma is a whole other thing that we should talk about. But for individuals with eating disorders, that feels like the absolute end of the world. So that rigid catastrophization is a perfectionistic mindset that fuels the eating disorder symptoms. And then comparisons, we are in such a world of comparisons all of the time, everywhere. I was just telling Edie this morning that I spend too much time on Instagram. And Me too, guilty. Yeah. <laughs> and fortunately, I follow really like positive, educational, exciting accounts that represent things that I believe in and things that I want to learn more about and areas I want to grow. That's not the case for so many people with eating disorders. They're following the, you know, influencers and the fitness models and the Instagram models who are all telling you, if you eat this way, look this way, do it effortlessly. And, you know, you're a bendy yogi and you drink your green juice and you have laxative teas, you take laxative (laughs) teas and you have perfect social events with your friends. Then you're worthy. Then you are a person of worth. And when you're someone with an eating disorder with a perfectionistic brain and you're sitting there comparing yourself to those false images of what anybody's life actually looks like, you're going to feel really miserable about yourself. And your low self-worth is just going to spiral further and further, which drives you more into the eating disorder behaviors to try to build up a sense of self-efficacy, a sense of worthiness. And so these cognitive distortions that are inherent in perfectionism really fuel drive for thinness, body dissatisfaction, food rules. So they're inextricably tied. I see perfectionism to some extent in almost every eating disorder client that I work with. And at times it's like a top treatment target. Other times we're working on other things first, but I work on this very often with patients and talking about the group that I'm running. Um, So after I was like really diving into the research and really examining like the patterns that I was seeing in Um, my clients both at UCSD and in my private practice in Oceanside, I was like, I want to take all this clinical knowledge and do something with it. Like, how can I create something to really make a difference for these individuals who are really suffering? And so I crafted this group. It's a six-week group. And essentially the group starts by me sharing my own story and saying like, I really care about this because I really know what it's like. And I've really been there. It's not anything that you have to be ashamed of. I think sometimes people are embarrassed by how perfectionistic they are. And I really want to help, you know, clients coming into the group to understand it's okay that you struggle with this and we're going to work it out together. So like my tagline for the group is that I want to help you use your powers for good instead of for evil. I love that. (laughs) Because perfectionists like do have some really intrinsically innate positive qualities that help them oftentimes to be very successful. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people who are really high achieving, people who have, you know, met multiple goals that they want to often have some perfectionistic tendencies, but using your powers for good instead of evil is something that I'm going to talk about in a minute, but is a component of learning how to challenge those cognitive distortions. So the group starts with psychoeducation, just saying like, this is what we know about eating disorders and perfectionism. It's really common. 
I think that patients in the group often feel really validated by that because it's something that unfortunately we don't talk enough about in the field of eating disorders. So I think that feels really validating and comforting. Um, then we go into some more of the cognitive work around here are all these distortions. I want you to, for the next week, catch yourself when you're in them and do the best that you can to challenge that thought and think about that goal or that relationship or that hobby in a different way than you've been thinking about it. So the cognitive distortions piece is kind of the groundwork for what comes next, which is the behavioral change. So the behavioral change happens through exposure work. And when patients first hear about this group, they're like, oh, I heard that group has exposures. And they get really (laughs) nervous. They get so nervous about it, which is understandable because changing behaviors is hard. Mm -hmm. So we create an exposure hierarchy, you know, moving from the things that are maybe the easiest, the most comfortable to change to the things that really feel unmanageable and undoable. And Adults don't give, get enough prizes in life for doing the things we should do. So I provide many prizes. I love that. <laughs> many prizes, essential oils and putties and dog magnets and, you know, all the things because adults need more reinforcement yeah. for like changing behavior. Like getting random gifts is the best thing ever. It is. It's amazing. I also keep many of the rewards yeah. for myself <laughs> yeah. for running the group. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we do those exposures and the... The patients in the group give each other a lot of support around that. They see each other during the week, you know, not wearing makeup or picking a challenge snack or breaking a food rule, and they support each other. They really cheer each other on. So that's really awesome, the sense of community that they have in that group. And then we incorporate um, mindfulness. So perfectionists have a really, really hard time being mindful. It is so hard to show up and be present for your life when you are constantly going through your to-do list, when you are berating yourself for the one remark you made in a meeting that you wish you had said differently. It is so hard to just be present and live joyfully. And so we talk a lot about how to use a mindfulness practice to help somebody recover from both the eating disorder patterns and the perfectionistic mindset. And that tends to be really challenging and is kind of more of a long-term process, I think, than something that can happen in the context of six weeks. But beginning to give them those skills, I think, is important. And then my favorite part comes from some dialectical behavioral therapy content. It's called High Achievement Versus Perfectionism. And it's a component of this DBT ACEs protocol. And essentially, it's this notion of using your powers for good instead of evil. So how can I harness all of my desires for high achievement in a positive way instead of being a perfectionist. And so we talk a lot about the distinctions between high achievers and perfectionists. And some of the ones that I really like a lot are that high achievers can ask for help. I think that, you know, being able to ask somebody for help when you're struggling is such a huge thing to do, not only for yourself, but for the relationship. And perfectionists don't ask for help. They're in it for themselves. They're in it to do it 100% on their own. And that really gets in the way of being able to not only be effective, but also have healthy, helpful relationships. Another one is that high achievers are able to reward themselves along the way. As a, you know, struggling, like 
maniacal perfectionist in grad school, I never rewarded myself. I never got my nails done or took a bath or sat on my patio or, you know, went shopping or called a friend to reward myself for a really hard research meeting that I had or publishing a paper. It was just, what is the next goal? What is the next thing? Never stopping to give myself a moment and reward myself. And so high achievers are able to reward themselves along the way. High achievers also know how to troubleshoot and problem solve. Perfectionists often are so intent on doing things one specific way that if something goes wrong, if if Mia, they can't find parking <laughs> or something gets in the way of the plan going exactly the way they wanted it to, it's hard for them to see it coming together and being okay. So a high achiever is somebody who's able to say, you know what, I'm going to try this different option because the the plan A that I had didn't work, but I have plan B, C, and D. Having some flexibility in the thinking. Having flexibility. And that is the key difference between a high achiever and a perfectionist is the ability to think dialectically. So to be able to hold multiple things as truths, to be able to think in a more open, fluid, flexible way. And perfectionists just oftentimes really cannot do that. That's kind of inherent in what perfectionism is. And so when you are harnessing your powers for good and becoming a high achiever, you start thinking in a way that feels a lot more balanced, a lot more wise-minded. So that's kind of what that group looks like. And I really enjoy it. I love running it. It's it's a very popular group and it's a group that they dread sometimes yeah. because of the exposure work. Um, but it gets, you know, really good feedback. The The patients really seem to benefit from it. And the other thing I want to mention about treating perfectionism is that perfectionism is a trait that persists into eating disorder recovery. So we've we've done many studies that have looked at does perfectionism really get better when somebody recovers from an eating disorder? And the answer is not right away. So it can take months, years to make any significant movement in terms of perfectionistic traits. And so what I always want to tell clinicians and clients who are working on this themselves is that it's really important to be patient because your patterns are not going to change overnight. They're not going to change right away. And if you place perfectionistic standards on how you're working on perfectionism, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be really miserable. Yeah. So just giving yourself the grace and the freedom to move at your own pace and know that it's going to be a challenge. Totally. And I think, I mean, I've talked about this. I mean, I think again, like almost every session of drawing that idea of like uh, recovery is not linear and that there, it's going to be loops and turns and ups and downs. And like, there's no such thing as being a perfect patient. There's no such right. thing as being perfect in recovery. So like trying to move through that while also honoring the fact that like you can, again, utilize this for good, like this drive for getting better, this drive for wanting to, you know, feel genuine and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You can't do that perfectly. Like right. there has to be some give and take. Totally. For sure. It reminds me of <clears throat> a lot of the radically open DBT approach just because, mm-hmm. I mean, makes sense. You're talking about like the dialectics and um, one of the things that we have clients do within that is like really start to seek novelty, but also mm-hmm. actually work on non-productivity quite a bit. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And also, like you said, with the challenge of like, this is like exposure and it's hard, but yeah. especially people that are not um, super prone to 
to work that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just a lot of what you're saying does resonate with sort of yeah. the path that I'm on to with clients-ish. Totally. I think, you know, one of the exposures that I encourage many patients in the group to do is to sit at a cafe for 20 minutes and not do anything. I think that perfectionists have such a push to be productive. I spent the first 25 years of my life trying to be as productive as possible, and it totally ran me into the ground. I almost never gave myself any time to just rest. And so helping, you know, the individuals in that group learn to just sit with themselves and be non-productive is so difficult for them. And I empathize. Like I look at them and I'm like, I know, I get it. This is really hard. And let's talk about all the ways that your life is going to benefit from just slowing down and being more mindful. So I think, you know, that's um, something that I, I hope they benefit from working on. And I know it's really difficult. Super difficult. And we were kind of talking before we started recording of like, I recently was, you know, with my therapist and talking about how I'm just like tired and all of these things. And she was like, well, take me through like your quote unquote rest day. And we kind of discovered that like, even on my rest day, like I was doing like multiple things at once. Like I was mm-hmm. swiffering while listening to a book and talking on the phone and like doing like all of the things instead of just like actually resting. One mindfully, you weren't doing that. Yes, I was right. not doing it mindfully. And I actually remember like this was years ago, but it was like my first exposure into meditation and mindfulness. And my therapist had me listen to a guided meditation. She took my pulse and then she had me listen to a guided meditation. And then after my pulse went up because I was so uncomfortable with having to like be present and be in my body, um, which was very eye-opening and very scary, right? Because it's like, this is supposed to calm you down. This is supposed to be relaxing and I'm failing at that, mm-hmm. right? That black and white thinking. And she was like, no, no, no. Like, this is good. It shows us that there's space to work here. Um, so I just, I also empathize so much with this idea of the discomfort that comes when your perfectionism is being challenged. Mm-hmm. But it also is like such a wonderful freedom when you can actually be like, it's okay that it didn't go this way. It means that there's other options and there's other reasons as to how you can harness this discomfort. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, just thinking about how all three of us sitting at this table struggle with perfectionism, I think (laughs) is, you know, indicative of how this is a cultural epidemic of perfectionism. It is something that, you know, we're seeing on Instagram, we're seeing in schools, we're seeing in the medical establishment. I think that diet culture is a breeding ground for perfectionism. And diet culture is what we're swimming in, living in, breathing in every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot about, I I was telling Edie that over the weekend, I was having a conversation with my brother who's in med school, and he was talking a lot about how BMI is used as one of the like main things that they talk about with every patient in terms of their health and what that's going to predict and what that says about them. And BMI is ridiculous. It is not an appropriate or adequate predictor of health, but it fits very nicely into this perfectionism paradigm in which there are neat, discrete categories of what is right and what is wrong. And the medical establishment is playing into this idea that if you, if your body is this shape and you look this way, then you are right and you are worthy. And if it doesn't look that way, then you are wrong and you have to change something about yourself right away. And it also breeds 
the blame game, right? That it's your fault that you have exactly. strep throat. Right. What? You have an earache, and so yeah. we should talk about your BMI. Right. Like, what? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And so thinking about how medicine plays into this, thinking about the impact of weight stigma on individuals' lives and not only psychological, but also physical, like medical well-being, we have to look at this as a cultural issue that our culture, diet culture, breeds perfectionism. And, you know, it's easy to look at an ad for a green juice and just say, oh, wow, well, you know, that would probably make me feel really good. I think that that like looks really delicious, but that's not the message that most people are getting. Most people on some level are getting the message that if you drink this, you're good. If you don't drink that and you just drink the orange juice, you're bad. You've made a bad choice. And so, so much of our culture around us is just reinforcing these ways that we categorize ourselves as good or bad or worthy or unworthy. And it's about having conversations with our friends and our family and our coworkers and saying like, that actually is feeding into this unhelpful paradigm where people are categorized as worthy or unworthy. And really thinking about perfectionism on a more systemic level and how it maintains disordered eating and eating disorders across the spectrum. You nailed it. I can <laughs> yeah. so relate to, oh my God, the righteousness that comes from um, like the perfectionism of nutrition and, mm-hmm. and orthorexia. And I remember, you know, off and on for like, a, not a decade, I don't want to say that because that's crazy, but off and on for many years, I would um, just have so much righteousness about what I put into my body and then mm-hmm. um, the identity of that. And I remember even like going so extreme that like I had some roommates that I probably wouldn't even have like bought them a gallon of milk and had it on my person because that would have reflected upon me that I would ingest such a thing. I, I'm, I'm wow. fucking serious. Wow. That's intense, Mia. Hardcore. So it's funny how I laugh now when you say I'm perfectionistic, but obviously there are some (laughs) things um, going on. So then, of course, you feel like you have to overcorrect the other way. And it's just like, no, I'll just uh, eat anything every day, all day. And then, you know, there's not a balance there. So I I really had to figure that out. But um, it's just interesting when you bring that up. That that really reminded me of a time where I was so self-righteous about that stuff. And I don't think it helped my relationships one bit. One, One iota. Right. If you'd ask the people around me. Right. And it's a form of like protection. Right. And I think I really resonated with this idea of like, again, going back to this, using it for good versus evil, having that flexibility, because even like our parts of ourselves that we find very uncomfortable and we don't love, right. Like they're there to protect us. Mm -hmm. And so we just need to start to figure out a way to utilize them and feel like we have a healthy level of control over them. Mm -hmm. Right. Like with anxiety, Mm -hmm. right. Like I hate feeling anxious, so uncomfortable. No one likes it, but it also, you know, helps keep us safe, right? Mm -hmm. And it helps us do the work to be able to be able to tolerate it and move through it. And I think anxiety and perfectionism kind of overlap very closely. It's a motivator. Helps you get things done. Exactly. Yeah. For sure. When it keeps us up at two in the morning about, (laughs) literally, this will be my ongoing anxiety spiral is I, when I was in college, I, it was like, I just transferred to University of Miami. And there's this like thing they call the breezeway, which is where everyone hangs out, the food courts there. And I had just gotten sushi and I didn't have any friends yet. I had just transferred in and I was walking and I 
was looking at like, there was like all these groups set up and I was looking over and I tripped and I fell literally like flat on my face. <laughs> Saved my sushi though. Like I fell harder because- That's a win. <laughs> I was holding onto the sushi because it was like $9 and I was a very poor college student. And I fell right in front of the entire football team. And mm. Miami is a very big football <laughs> school. So, and they like ran, they were so nice, but I was like, I will wake up in like a cold sweat about when this happened. Even though like now I think it's so funny. Like I don't actually have a real attachment to it, but there's an example. I'm a very clumsy person. Oh my God, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Uh, do you, before we kind of wrap up, do you run, I mean, I know that you share kind of like the vulnerability of being a perfectionist, but I know this happens to me all the time and I'm sure Mia too, of this being put on a pedestal because we're a therapist mm-hmm. that like, mm-hmm. well, you don't struggle anymore. You don't have any problems. Like mm-hmm. you have everything figured out. You don't have like all of these things. And it's like so hard to kind of counter that in an appropriate way without mm-hmm. like sharing like, actually, like these are all the things that I struggle with because that's not helpful to bring into the room. Totally. So I'm wondering how that kind of like projection forms in the room with you. Yeah. I think it's funny because sometimes the clients in the group will joke like, oh, Jenny runs the perfectionism group because she's perfect. And like, (laughs) where did that come from? Like that to me seems bonkers, but I do think that being in the role of being the therapist running the group, I do get kind of put on this pedestal of like, she knows what she's talking about. She's gotten through this entirely. And so I feel like it's really helpful to share my own journey through perfectionism and to share the ways that I still struggle with it. To share, you know, I was in a meeting this morning and I made a comment and I thought about it for the next hour because I didn't feel like I said exactly what I wanted to say. And it's sharing, I think, smaller examples like that that still come up in my life that I'm still working through that reminds those individuals that they're not alone. There's nothing wrong with being in a place where you're working through perfectionism. And everyone struggles with it to some extent, you know? So just humanizing yourself and being willing to self-disclose, like you said, to the extent that it's helpful, because I'm not going to share like my deepest, darkest secrets of how perfectionism, you know, still haunts me, (laughs) but because mostly it doesn't, but, you know, sharing smaller examples of how it still shows up in my life, I think can be really helpful. And, um, I don't have any issues doing that. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could talk for, for hours. I know. Never, never, never. <laughs> can't even believe you did this for us. Yeah. No, it's thank you. It's been so awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I love talking about this and you guys are amazing. So to chat with you thank is so you. nice. Will you tell us where we can, where people can find you? Yes. So my website is um, jwhpsychotherapy.com. I also have an Instagram for my private practice, which is at jwhpsychotherapy. And um, my website has information about my practice. I am accepting new clients into my practice all the time and really excited to work with people with a wide range of eating disorders who may be struggling with perfectionism too, because I think, you know, like we've discussed, obviously it's something really important to treat. So I'm, you know, just so excited to have done this with you guys. And thank you so much for the chance. I, I know you do run a support 
and recovery type group too. Yes. So what day is that on? So my eating disorder skills and support group is on Thursdays from seven to eight. And it is part skills review. So the first 10 to 15 minutes is going over a DBT skill that's helpful for using in the context of treating eating disorders, which is all of them. <laughs> and um, then the remainder of the group is support and process. So the group is up and running. It is in Oceanside. And if anybody has questions, please feel free to contact me or reach out. I'd love to have you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, If you have any comments, questions, and concerns, you can, or concerns, (laughs) not perfect. Um, (laughs) You can reach out to us on our Instagram, which is at Breaking Down the Podcast, at Mia Swag with three Gs, and at Edie Stark Therapy. Um, we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast, rate, review us, let us know what you think, and we can't wait to talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.